Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to catch you up on the Oath Keepers trial. Five members of the Oath Keepers are on trial. It just went to the jury. So we're going to look at closing arguments and some lies told in this trial so far, including lie by the judge, the federal judge himself, to prevent testimony that might favor the Oath Keepers. This is crazy. My friend, independent journalist Steve Baker, has been inside the courtroom every day, and he's going to join my show to break down what the corporate media might be omitting. Now, let's take a look at the corporate media's take, because YouTube loves it when I do that. This is BBC News, Oath Keepers trial, U.S. Capitol riot case goes to jury. Jury has begun deliberation in the trial of five people accused of the most serious crime to date in connection with January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. Well, here's here's the uh, defendant in the prosecution's case. So defense, BBC says, defendants were pictured in numerous videos and photos among throngs of people around the Capitol on the 6th of January last year. Some of them entered the building, but their lawyers have argued that there was never any concrete plan or conspiracy to storm the building in order to halt certification of the 2020 presidential election. Now, the prosecution countered by arguing that they do not need to prove a specific plan to invade the building only that the defendants agreed among themselves to attempt to halt the peaceful transfer of the presidency. So, prosecution, our government trying to see if they can convict these people of seditious conspiracy before Steve Baker joins me to break down the corruption in this case that the corporate media is not showing. First, shout out to the dog. I'm still dog sitting. This is Sugar, the massive mix, snapping. I can't get her off of my green screen. Also, shout out to the sponsor of my coverage. If the rising cost of food, housing, and gas wasn't enough, now your dollars won't go far with utility bills either. Energy bills are expected to surge an average of 20% by next month and will jump by a further 30% in 2023 and 2024. This is why I highly recommend this amazing power-saving device. Uh, This device provides your home with a smooth and stable electrical current that helps lead to dramatically lower energy bills. It has been featured on Fox News, Forbes, Popular Electronics, Discover, and Wired. StopWatt lowers energy bills by stabilizing power and reducing dirty electricity and eliminating harmful spikes. You'll also get a $100 utility rebate certificate if you get yours now. Try, inspect, and judge it with your own eyes and hands risk-free for yourself for 60 days. Plus, if you act now, you can get up to an additional 50% off. Just go to the link down in my description, savepowerbills.com. That's www.savepowerbills.com. And thank me later. Make sure you guys can hear me. Okay, checking your comment section. Thank you so much for the super chat. Chief Executive, every donation really helps. So I appreciate that. With that being said, Let's bring on Steve Baker, who just got out of court. Thank you so much for joining me, Steve. Closing arguments were just made in the Oath Keepers trial. Now, there's going to be more Oath Keepers going to trial. The government is trying to prove that these people are the most anti-American people out there who want to overthrow our government and the Constitution. Uh, So take me through. Uh, You said there were lies told in this trial so far. Tell me. Well, if, if I if I started counting and telling you all the lies that are that were told in this trial by the the uh, uh, the government, I, and when I say the government, I mean the prosecution attorneys as well as 
the hypocrisies that were on display from the judge himself, it, we would, you know, you and I would be on the on this for the next couple of hours, and because this this trial has been going for seven weeks, so I've been putting up with seven weeks of this nonsense coming from the government. But when we got to the closing arguments, it became very, very uh, difficult to for me because I'm so passionately involved, I'm so emotionally involved in this trial, to sit through what I was hearing because the government just came out with guns blazing. And after all of these weeks of testimony, they had had taken all of these statements from uh, hundreds and hundreds of message boards and chats and go-to-meeting conference calls and all of these things that the Oath Keepers did in the planning of their actual uh, personal security details that they were doing on uh, January 6th, actually January 5th and January 6th. And then they would they would take little small excerpts or they would take singular slides out where these guys, because they're, they're military guys, you know, they're all retired military guys, uh, retired military and law enforcement. And so they, they don't talk like the rest of us. You know what I mean? They, they, they use some pretty brash and pretty, uh, well, you know, the best way to say it is I, I, I say scary words. So they <laughs> use a lot of scary words, but the way the government presented those scary words was as though they were intent on literally storming the Capitol and literally going in and taking Congress members hostage and hunting them down, literally saying, accusing the Oath Keepers of going to D.C. for the express purpose of hunting humans. That's a that's an actual line used by the uh, the, the prosecution in this case. And nothing is further than, uh, uh, from the truth because in addition to all of the uh, uh, exonerating and exculpatory information and evidence that the, um, uh, the defense counsels were able to present, one of the most powerful moments was an, came from a, an event planner who, who does he, – he does tons and tons of events in D.C., he or organize, he's the actual planning organizer for staging and, and PA systems and the, putting the speakers together and doing all the scheduling and securing the permits. And he actually showed the permits that he had secured from the Capitol Police Department itself on the Capitol grounds at which Oath Keepers were going to be providing security and showed the, the permits were flashed on the screens for the jury and the entire court to see in the media room. We all saw the permits signed by, signed by the Capitol Police. And, and this government actually said in front of this jury that those permits were secured and that those personal security details were nothing but a ruse and a... Um, Basically, it was their cover for what their true intentions were, which was, of course, to storm the Capitol, to stop the certification of the election and to uh, find and hunt down Congress people. That's crazy. Um, Okay, I'm getting some comments that people can't hear too well. Is that true? Guys, let me know if this is tolerable. Okay, yeah, if you hold your phone closer, perhaps, because your audio is coming from His the microphone phone. is useless. <laughs> we can hear him. Okay, good. Someone said we can hear him ignore the whiners. Okay, thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, I know there's some audio snobs out there. <laughs> and sometimes when you do it live, there's tech issues, but we, I wanted to get a live update. All right, so the BBC was saying, quote, in one recording made by an informant, Mr. Rhodes is heard saying, quote, 
We should have brought rifles. We should have fixed it right then and there. He goes on to talk about hanging House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Um, But, you know, the fact that he says we should have means they never plan to. Right. I mean, that's what I take from it. This was this was a statement he made in a secret recording from a, a federal plant who secretly recorded him in a parking lot when he got back to Dallas, Texas on January 10th. And he was very upset at uh, Trump. And I'm not defending Rhodes' inflammatory words. Believe me, I'm, I'm not. You know, Rhodes and some of his speeches, some of his more conspiratorial theories about the, the government and about the election – may or may not be defensible depending upon where you fall on, on you know the, the the conspiracy spectrum but so i'm not i'm not trying to defend Stuart, Stuart Rhodes and and that particular recording that was made by an undercover agent but the bottom line is is that he in fact said that after the fact this was not something they did they are hanging these guys for words that were said in this case four days after the fact, not for what they did on the day. Wow. That, yeah. It, but, but that, but that happened over and over and over again. They brought in testimony, uh, not testimony necessarily, but they brought in evidence of all of the, you know, cause they cap, you know, like they, they confiscated all their phones. Uh, as you know, the FBI, they're able to download all of these phone calls and all of this information, their, their Facebook messages, their signal chats, all of those types of things. And what they were able to do is they were able to, as I said before, to piece together a narrative often from uh, conversations that had nothing to do with January 6th at all because the Oath Keepers provided security details at two other events after the election. There was the Million Maga March in November. I think it was November 14th. They provided security details for VIP speakers at that particular event. So a lot of their planning, a lot of their chat sessions had to do with that event. And then they also provided security details for VIP speakers at the uh, Jericho March, which was uh, December 12th, I believe. And so at these two events, the FBI and the government brought in conversations and then piece together little pieces of conversations as they were planning for those events and then try to influence the jury to think that all of these conversations were taking place and talking about and focusing on the big day of January 6th, which wasn't even announced until December 19th. So they were bringing in evidence, all the way, even some evidence they brought in was before um, uh, before the election, back in, all the way in September, that they did to prejudice this jury against this group of guys. At the, at, the, at the end of the day, though, Ivory, there were 14 of these Oath Keepers that have been charged with this seditious conspiracy charge. Some of them have already pled out, and... In this particular case, there was five. I don't know exactly how many are going to be in the next case, five or six at least, maybe seven. But the bottom line is, is that what they did on the day does not in any way comport with either the evidence that was presented by the FBI. And over and over and over again, when under cross-examination, the defense counsel would ask the FBI agents, and there was, I don't know, uh, 10 or 12, maybe 15 different FBI agents that were presented in this trial. And every single time the defense counsel would ask them, have you actually seen messages? Have you heard conversations? 
do you have evidence at any time of the leadership of the Oath Keepers ordering their guys to go in to the Capitol? No. Do you have any chats? Do you have any evidence whatsoever of these defendants in this trial being ordered to go in and take the Capitol or to um, hunt down Congress people? The answer was always no. Do you have any specific evidence whatsoever of any of these Oath Keepers specifically ordered to go in and stop the certification of the election on January 6th? The answer every single time was no. Wow. Every time. Did who who was the who were the first people who breached the Capitol? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? When we we know the famous Ray Epps video because that happened at the very first barricade breach at twelve forty two a.m. or p.m. rather. And he and was that, he was organizing that the night before, I believe. Well, he was telling people the night before at rallies on the streets that they had to uh, they had to go into the Capitol. And he even said, I may get, you know, I may get arrested for this, but we have to go inside the Capitol. He was rallying people at that time to do so. And he was right there at the very first barricade breach. And guess where the Oath, Caper, Oath Keepers were at the very first barricade breach? Where? They were back at the Ellipse in the VIP section <laughs> with President Trump. Oh, that was a great distance from the Capitol. You think? Wow. And so this is this is these are the truths huh. that cannot be overcome by I mean not only by video by evidence there was not a single oath keeper present at the first barricade breach there was not a single oath keeper present at that first west line battle that started around one o'clock where they were on the west lower west terrace where they started engaging police officers and attacking these agents provocateur and these more antagonistic individuals where you when you ask who were they that's that's the great question but in this particular trial none of that was allowed to be a allowed to be talked about and then when the first doors were breached at uh 212 when that west uh uh, senate side door was breached and the window was busted in and several individuals jumped through that window came in and unlocked that door push it open and then hundreds and hundreds of people began to flow into the capitol from that door no not one not a single oath keeper present when that took place but somehow in Jeffrey Nessler, the assistant U.S. attorney in charge of this case, who was the lead prosecuting voice in this case, he said in his opening statement back eight weeks ago, he said the Oath Keepers were the leaders, wow. end quote. But they weren't. Yeah, I know you mentioned the defense question, the FBI, getting the FBI to admit, no, the Oath Keepers were not ordering people inside. Uh, my viewers asking did the defense counter all of this? So what other, uh, what else did the defense use to counter the prosecution's argument? Well, absolutely. The, the defense did counter all of this. I mean, the, the, when they said no to these questions, it was because they were being asked these questions by the defense counsel. Uh, and, and interestingly, because it's a multi-defendant case, every single witness that the prosecution put on the stand, all five defense counsels were able to cross-examine those witnesses. So they got asked that question a lot. We heard that no answer to this over and over and over again. So what the government ultimately did when they realized that their case was falling apart in that regard, they switched their strategy and then they began to say, and I kid you not, Ivory, they began to say, well, it was implied. And in fact, Mm -hmm. that it was not explicit orders, but every 
everybody knew that it was an implicit order. Oh my gosh. Well, that does not sound like a very strong argument for the jury to look at. Well, you would not think so, but nevertheless, this is a DC jury and a DC jury is just as reliable, you know, on a conviction rate as the sun is coming up every morning. And that's the scary part of this. So it's a, it's a very, very tough thing to overcome when an average of 95% of all federal cases tried in the district of Columbia are guilty verdicts. Wow. Yikes. All right, Ray, thank you for the super chat. This is a good interview. Appreciate that. Okay. So you mentioned to me that the judge lied to prevent testimony. Tell me what happened. Uh, Last week, the uh, defense brought in two witnesses. One of them was a man by the name of Mike Nichols, an Oath Keeper. Uh, Many of your viewers may have famously seen the video because this is public record of a particular United States Capitol Police officer who put on a red MAGA hat, a black gentleman by the name of Tariq Johnson, Lieutenant Tariq Johnson. And he had a problem because he had some of his officers that were trapped inside the rotunda and by some very agitated uh, and violent protesters. And he came out seeking help. He found two Oath Keepers down at the bottom of the east side steps. He came up, identified himself, said, I need help. Can you help me? They showed him their, their credentials. One of them is uh, actually a retired SWAT team guy from many, many, not only former military, but former law enforcement for 20 years, uh, organized a riot control group, SWAT teams. So he has a tremendous amount of experience. And, and being an Oath Keeper, he, he said to the, he said to the, to the guys, of course we can help you. We're, we're Oath Keepers. And so the lieutenant, Tariq Johnson, the the Capitol Police officer, handed him his megaphone. And they began to walk up through that crowd on the east step. So he led them through, hands on shoulders, led the uh, lieutenant, uh, uh, U.S. Capitol Police officer, up through that crowd with the bullhorn saying, let us through, we're Oath Keepers. Yeah, I have a picture of this. Here it is. Absolutely. This is is actually when they were coming out. So this, uh, um, on the left, that guy with the bullhorn at the bottom, that he's holding the police officer's bullhorn. Yes, that and- is that is Mike Nichols, and he was sitting in the test uh, in the the courtroom, ready to testify last week. And also the filmmaker who captured this entire event is a professional videographer that captured this entire thing. He was also in the courtroom prepared to testify, and Judge Maida went into, and there's just no other way to say it, he went into full-on acting mode and began to pretend, it's on the record, it's in the transcripts, pretending like he had never heard the name Tariq Johnson before, pretending like he had never heard the name Mike Nichols before. This is an incredibly brilliant jurist. He is a smart man. He knows everything about everything and everybody involved not just in this case, but in January 6th specifically. This isn't the only case he's involved in. He has been involved in January 6th cases and taking and doing hearings since January of 2021. So he's been at this for almost two years. He knows every square inch of that building and what was happening at every time of the day. And he began to pretend that he was unfamiliar with this. So Tariq could not lie. Oh, wow. Okay. So Tariq, for people who have not been following, Tariq Johnson is the uh, police officer wearing the MAGA hat 
um, in the lower left. Uh, he's wearing the MAGA hat and the blue mask. Yeah, a Capitol Police officer wearing a MAGA hat um, and collabing with an Oath Keeper, giving him his bullhorn. Now, Tariq Johnson has been covered quite a bit in the media. Right. So for this judge to act like he didn't know who he was. Oh, it's it's, it's absolutely impossible for him to deny. This has been international news. It's been covered all over the world. It's been covered relentlessly here in D.C. It is absolutely impossible that he did not know. But he pretended that he didn't. And he pretended that he had not seen this video before. And so with the jury out of the room, with the defense teams arguing and pleading with the government to allow them to present this as evidence in this particular case. He finally relented and said, oh, guys, okay, show me the video as if he hadn't seen it before. So he took the five minutes and he sat there and he watched on his screen and he watched the video played back. And then he came back and he said, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. He said, I, I, I just don't see it. He said, these guys um, they were not with these defendants in this room. They weren't with any of the other quote unquote co-conspirators in this charge that are going to be in the second trial. And because that this particular, these two particular oath keepers that were assisting Tariq Johnson, um, were not in their group that he said, I'm not going to allow this to be shown in court and shown to the, um, uh, the jury because he claimed it would be prejudicial on the Oath Keeper's behalf. But Ivory, this is the hypocrisy. All of those scenes of violence that I mentioned earlier, the initial barricade breach at 1242, where the first police officer was shoved over, fell over, hit her head on a concrete step and busted her head and went temporarily unconscious. That was the first violence of the day against a a Capitol police officer was at 1242 in that barricade breach while the Oath Keepers were back out at the ellipse watching President Bush's uh, Bush, Bush, (laughs) President Trump's speech. And then they they showed the violence on the West Terrace. They showed the violence in the West Tunnel um, uh, battle. They showed the break in the actual first violent breach of the building itself at 212 p.m. They were the, the government was allowed to show those prejudicial videos in which not a single defendant in this trial or in the next trial was even in the location. Most of them not even on Capitol Hill yet at the time. But the judge would not allow an equal and opposite presentation of video to show that at the core of what the Oath Keepers mission and creed is as former law enforcement and former uh, military guys is to protect and to serve people in the manner that they did before in keeping with their oath. And that's what their creed is, but he wouldn't allow it in the lie of the, and that was his biggest lie of the, of the entire trial was this facade that he put on pretending that he had never seen this and that he was unaware of that. But then when he looked at it and he said, well, these guys, he said, he said the other co-conspirators were not even close to this event. They weren't participating at all. And so we found the next that night, my, myself, the, the, the two photos that you just put on the screen, yeah. I found those from NBC News. I handed those to the defense teams. They went back to the, um, the judge the next day with the jury out of the room. And the, if you can look on the left picture there you can see the three arrows on the left picture there those are three other co quote unquote 
Oath Keeper co-conspirators that were actually there assisting in the extraction of those officers down the steps. In fact, the one at the bottom, the bottom right um, uh, arrow, that particular Oath Keeper actually had his hands on these uh, officers helping them down the steps because it's kind of when they're in that, that full riot gear, it's very clumsy. You can see they're actually holding on to rails as they come down and hold it, holding on to each other. It's uh, very clumsy to move around in that full riot gear. And so he was assisting them. And then the uh, defense even showed actual video footage of one of the Oath Keeper, quote unquote, co-conspirators personally hands-on assisting those those officers down the steps and made us still said i'm not going to allow it because these defendants were not involved wow okay so if i'm hearing you right you're saying that the judge allowed the prosecution to use video of rioting in which the oath keepers were not associated at all the oath keepers way, were way over at the ellipse during that rioting a Yet mile pro- away the prosecution gets to use video uh, not associated with the Oath Keepers, uh, implying that the Oath Keepers were somehow associated when they weren't. And yet the defense is not allowed to use video of Oath Keepers collabing with and helping the police because the Oath Keepers in that video were not the exact Oath Keepers on trial today. That's correct. So he could show or the government could show prejudicial video. Wow. But the defense could not show the equal and opposite type of video that would show the actual mission of the Oath Keepers and what our guys in this trial that we've been covering for the last eight weeks uh, also had in their hearts and their minds. Was to serve and protect forever. That's That's why they're called the Oath Keepers. Um, They're keeping their oath. Um, Yet, you know, the prosecution would argue that talking about hanging Nancy Pelosi, that's not serving and protecting her. <laughs> that's a no, thing. and, and, no, and, and that, that's exactly right. And that's why I'm saying I would not defend Stuart Rhodes. But let's just say, again, that this is something that he said on January 10th. If that's something he said, mm-hmm. I wish we had done. Right. Because he was so angry. And what he was angry at at the moment was he wasn't angry uh, at the, the the failure of their mission. He was angry that President Trump had not evoked or invoked rather the Insurrection Act because he had been he had written two open letters to President Trump and he had been calling for President Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act. And that if he would, he would bring his guys in to assist Trump's guys in um preventing the, uh, as he called, the unconstitutional election results from um, being ratified. So, but you're saying the judge's lie was that he was saying there were no co-conspirators in the video when when there were. And by the way, for the viewers, I do have that video linked down in my description. Um, It's a Instagram video that I uploaded a couple months ago, actually, where I interviewed you. On another topic, and this came up, so you see in the video me and Steve talking, and then you'll see at the end the video of the police collabing with Oath Keepers, linked down below. Steve's Twitter and blog are also linked down below. Um, thank you for the super chat. John, great interview. Really appreciate it. Dennis, thank you for the super chat. 
And greatness, thank you for the super chat. Do you think the House Republicans investigating Hunter Biden can be a distraction or an excuse from the invest- investigating January 6th? What's your take, Steve? Well, I think that uh, we're, we're a day late. With, know, with Hunter? Well, not with Hunter, but with these guys. I, I mean, the, what what's happening now with the changeover in Congress and with the House Republicans picking up an investigation of Hunter Biden certainly needs to happen. And should, this should have happened over two years ago. But the point being is, is that this is not necessarily purposely a distraction from investigating January 6th. But it is um, in terms of the turnover of Congress is what I'm talking about. We're we're a little late now because these guys, unfortunately, these five guys that are facing this D.C. jury. Today was the first day of deliberations. Uh, we got through the day. Uh, every other every other January 6th trial, the juries have come back in less than three hours with guilty verdicts. Uh, wow. The fact that we got through a full day is a good sign. And they will be off the rest of the week for the thanksgiving holiday so they won't be back in the uh, deliberation room again until monday morning and i'll be here i'll still be here jury watching here in dc that whole time but um uh, i am I'm, I'm excited to see uh, the the results of this hunter biden uh, investigation but what we need now is we need a retooling of what this house and house committee select committee uh, has been doing and the 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 House committee needs to be reformulated now that they're in charge and they need to go back in and pull the facade off of all of this presentation that they've been making to the American public and show them what was really going on that day. So I just wondered these um, jurors going home to Thanksgiving with their, you know, liberal DC families, yeah. is that going to wear off on them? Well, you know, they, the, the jury instructions are, of course, is that they're not supposed to talk to family or talk to anyone else about this trial while they're deliberating. They're not supposed to uh, watch any news programs that might have any news about either the trial or anything January 6th related. Of course, throughout this trial, it has come up more than once because the last, the eighth, I think it was, House Select Committee on January 6th was broadcast during the middle of this trial. And you're telling me that these guys went home at night and weren't curious enough to see if they were being talked about on the air that night or that they've not looked at any news reports and that on their own social media accounts that they haven't seen uh, stories and headlines about the January uh, or about this, uh, their particular trial that they're involved in and that they weren't curious enough to just maybe just click and look and see, uh, you know, what the news is saying about what they were, because ever there's two things that should have happened in this trial. Ivory. The first thing is, because of the nature of this trial and how inflammatory this whole story has been here in D.C. itself, there should have been a change of venue. And believe me, the defense teams argued for change of venue over and over and over again. It was denied every single time by Judge Maida. That's the first thing. The second thing that should have happened in this trial is that this jury should have been sequestered. And they were not. They were sent home every night. And during this trial, not only was the House Select Committee presenting their own uh, investigative uh, results and evidence about this particular event, but also 
they're watching a speech by President Biden, who then specifically talked about this trial. And each time the judge had to come in and he had to poll each individual juror. Did you see the president's speech last night? No, no. Right down the line, they all say no. But this is a jury that should have been sequestered. And this is a trial that should not have been held at D.C. Because as we know, the numbers don't lie. In fact, there, there were news agencies that did polling and they polled voters in D.C. And pre-trial, voters in D.C. said that they, they were predisposed to the guilt of the Oath Keepers. Ninety-five percent said so. Outside of D.C., the rest of the country, it was only 55 percent. Wow. OK. That's I, the difference. I got a couple of comments asking about your take on um uh ashley babbitt's death yeah yeah what are what are your thoughts on that well i i have incredible thoughts on that because as you know i saw ashley babbitt i saw her being worked on i saw her them trying to save her life yes steve was there at the capitol january 6th covering it as an independent journalist yeah so I was not in the room where she was shot and all of that famous video has been played over and over and over again. Where What happened after she was shot is those uh, SWAT teams moved her downstairs to the south exit of the lower level of the Capitol. And at that time, I was exiting as well. And I was going out that door. There were no other protesters. There were no other civilians in that area, that hallway at the time. I was the only civilian there and I stood there and watched them try to save her life. Now, I did not video it because it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. And the the point being is, is that when they were working on her, I thought it was a male. I did not know it was a female because uh, they had the hands were on her all over, uh, even though their shirt was off. There was a lot of blood. Uh, all I could see were shoes, and boots and, and, and blue jeans. And you don't you know, you just don't automatically think of a woman being shot. And there was a, an officer standing next to me. And I said, I said, uh, I said, is he shot? She said, yes. I said, is, is, um, I said, who shot him? She said, we did. I said, why did you shoot him? She said, because he pulled a gun on us. Well, she didn't know because there was a lot of radio chatter. And I've read the transcripts of the radio, the Capitol Police radio chatter. And they had no idea. There was, you know, the confusion, the fog of war, as they call it, uh, the chaos that was going on in that radio chatter. And so the point being is, is that the, the, the officers everywhere else in the building had no idea what had really happened. But we all know because we eventually saw the, the, the videos later. But what ended up happening is I ended up stepping outside that door just as the EMT units were coming in from the D.C. Uh, fire department. And so I had to step aside, allow them to come in. Then I stepped into when I stepped out the south uh, door, I was actually inside a police barricade. Again, I'm the only civilian inside the police barricade. So I took my camera and I walked down a ramp and got and, and I posted up right on that door because if the EMT unit came in that door, that's the door they were taking her out or him, as I thought at the time. And so as they the doors open. I got when I posted up 30 seconds later, the doors open 30 seconds after that with fully armed tactical unit escorts, the EMTs trying to save her life at the time. They were they started wheeling her out and then down this long uh, ramp. And as they were going down the ramp, I'm, I'm following and I'm filming down that ramp. And you can hear me on my own camera go. Oh, my gosh, it's a woman. Because wow. At that point, I saw her bare chest. 
And, and I'm like, Oh my God, it's a woman. And so I captured all of that. So when somebody asks me what I think about Ashley Babbitt, I saw Ashley Babbitt. Basically I saw her eyes. I knew she was dead at the moment. As soon as they loaded her into the ambulance, I got on my phone and I texted two people at that moment. I said, shots fired. A woman has been shot. She's not going to make it. Wow. Yeah. And then, of course, it wasn't until an hour or so later, maybe two hours later, that we actually heard the news reports that a female had been killed in the Capitol. So when people start telling me about, you know, trying to sell me on the, the conspiracy ideas of this, that this was a crisis actor and that all of those people inside that room or that hallway where she was shot were all crisis actors and that this is a, a complete and total lie. No, I'm the only civilian standing in there as an FBI medics and an FBI SWAT team was trying to feverishly trying to save this woman's life. I've seen the blood. I saw the, I saw the blank stare in her open eyes as she's, her, her head is laying over on that cart as they were wheeling her down. And I knew she was gone at the time. So this was not a conspiracy theory. These were not crisis actors. Ashley is gone. Wow. She was killed that day. That's horrible. Um, yeah, I have an interview with her husband at length on my uncensored website, ivoryhecker.com. If the viewers want to go on there and get his take, of course, he's very offended that people theorize that she was a crisis actor. Um, yes. Okay, well, I guess we'll have to stay tuned till Monday when the jury gets back to deliberate. Yeah, I guess so. I'll be here, and I'll be here all day waiting for that verdict, and I'll be uh, mostly at that time because the media room is packed and jammed and full. I'll be interviewing other journalists from all the mainstream media outlets. Uh, I've been, you know, staying in close touch with them, getting their take on this. Obviously they don't see the, they don't see this trial through the same filter that I'm seeing this trial. Sometimes I walk out of there and I read their articles that they write at the end of the evening or the next morning. And I wonder if they saw the same testimony that I saw, but you know, that's the way it works. You know, you were there. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, all right. Well, you guys can follow Steve's coverage of this. Um, Steve's been live tweeting some of this trial on his Twitter. You can uh, check it out down in my description, as well as his blog where he recaps it all. Um, he's been there every day. Um, checking your comments. Thank you, Steve and Ivor, for this interview. God bless you both and keep you safe. Amen. Thank you so much. That thank you. a lot. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. And we'll talk soon then. Thanks, Ivory. Happy Thanksgiving. To talk to you again. You too as well. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. -bye. Bye.